You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Leviticus chapter 12, laws concerning childbirth. We are now in the, in the middle of this section uh, that is dealing with the worshipers themselves, the individuals, the congregation of Israel, and the way in which they're to worship. And everything is related to a holy God, uh, our God, the God of the Bible, the God of Isaac and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a holy God. And everything that pertains to worship to Him must be done in the prescribed manner. We cannot approach God in uncleanness. We cannot approach God in the flesh, so to speak. Uh, We need to approach the Lord Jesus Christ not upon our merits, but upon the merits of of the blood of the sacrifice, which for the New Testament believer is Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, the Lord had to establish this sacrificial system to cover the sins of the people, to cleanse the camp, and to cleanse the utensils of the sanctuary so that they could come into His presence and have peace with God and to know that their guilt and their shame was removed. And and that's what we're studying. So God is laying out these laws, these, these ceremonial laws, some of them are dietary in nature. Some of them are going to be civil in nature. We'll, we'll get to all of that. But the important thing for us to understand as New Testament believers is that the ceremonial and dietary and civil laws that we find here don't apply to us. They don't apply to us. We're not living in a, theoc- in, in a theocracy in Israel in the time of the Mosaic Covenant. And, and, and as we've pointed out many times, Jesus Christ fulfills the ceremonial law of Leviticus. And, and the dietary law, it's no longer to be our focus. It's not the food that we eat that makes us unclean, Jesus said, but it's what comes out of your heart. It's what, it's what, you're, it's what you're processing spiritually and what you're living out. That's what is making you clean or unclean. And so, so now Leviticus has some great lessons for us to teach us about sin it teaches us about sanctification. It teaches us about the holiness of God. And there are some spiritual connections here that we can make to the New Testament and principles that we find in the New Testament. We've been doing that. Um, tonight is going to be a little bit uh, more difficult. We're talking about the laws concerning childbirth. And as I begin, I want to begin by saying this. <clears throat> because of the subject matter in the chapter tonight, Uh, I want to preface our Bible study with a word of encouragement and edification to all the women who are here tonight and really all the women who are going to listen to this Bible study uh, in in the future uh, that you, first of all, are are beloved and we are so grateful that you have chosen to come to Calvary Chapel. We pray that you feel protected and safe here. Uh, We really want to reach out to, to all of the women, both married single, young, and old. We, we really feel like you're a precious gift to our fellowship. And I want to be clear also about this tonight, that, that uh, there's, well, let me just say this. Many incidents that involve domestic abuse in which a woman is either physically, sexually, or emotionally, or verbally battered or abused, it can be traced down to Usually, one toxic belief, and that is that women are inherently inferior to men. I want to be clear tonight that the Bible absolutely refutes that idea in its entirety. 
From the beginning, in the book of Genesis, the Bible teaches us that women and men are equal in status. And they're both created in God's image. This truth is repeated and expanded upon throughout the uh, Old Testament. And it's clearly seen in the New Testament and especially in the life of Jesus Christ. We are to live in an ordered equality. But the first word about women in the Bible is what defines and serves as the last word on the subject. And that is that women are created in God's image and therefore highly valued by him just as men are. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, for example, reads this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female he created them. So right away I draw your attention to that verse and where we see that human beings were not defined firstly by their sex but rather they're being created in the image of God. Therefore, women and men alike are image bearers of the God that created us. And therefore, neither one is a second-class citizen, and nobody should be treated that way. You see, God's design for human relationships was there for, for there to be a mutual love and a mutual honor, not coercion and control one exercising that authority over another. That was the original plan. Now, of course, we know that because of the fall, God created an order. And so there is this thing that we call, I like to call it an ordered equality, where there's, there's equal status, but because of, uh, or for organizational purposes and for functionability, God has created this order. Now, I I need to also mention, as we begin this chapter, the context of ancient culture. The civilizations which lived in the time of the Mosaic Covenant. You see, we moderns, we really, we read sometimes and we, we read into Scripture, we read onto Scripture our modern thought processes and the way we think things should be. And if it doesn't measure up to what our society and what our culture ideals are, then we often are upset by that. And that's often what is the case in the Old Testament. When people read the Old Testament and go, oh, that's horrible. I can't believe it, you know. But let me remind you real quickly of the culture in which Moses, who was writing the book of Leviticus, lived. The civilizations that lived around them and the way that they did their lives was a lot different than the way you do life at your house here in Texas. You see, most uh, families in these times were centered around a patriarchal uh, culture. That means that in most of the, the, the cultures of the Near East, they were operated in a similar fashion. There was one male figure who was usually the patriarch or the father figure of that entire family. And his rule of the family was absolute in those Near East civilizations. And his rule was also upheld by the civil laws of the land, if they had any. And in those kinds of civilizations, women were considered property, And they were considered to be without rights. Sometimes they had a a, a little bit of a right, but they, they, they they weren't considered to be above the status of property in many of these cultures. So God, when he came in and 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 began to work with the nation of Israel, we don't see him radically changing culture entirely and transforming it away from 
the Middle Eastern culture that, or the Near East culture that was surrounded them, which is what we modern people would like to have seen. You know, we would like to see, you know, this amazing equality and, you know, women's rights and all that kind of stuff right then and there in the Old Testament. But, but really what we see is that God is changing things little by little within the cultural context in which his people are living. We see God's hand of mercy within the system of laws that he gives them, and especially towards women. And we see God establishing laws and establishing trends that as, the, as they play out in future times, they're moving in that direction of freedom. Well, not freedom, but, but uh, uh, just equal status, equality. Um. And I say freedom, I'm just backing to those, that wasn't the right word. It's not like these Israelite women were slaves, okay? That's, that's why I'm correcting that. Um, now, one biblical scholar named William Webb had this to say about it. He wrote, as one compares the biblical texts about women to their surrounding foreign context, a certain impression emerges. On the whole, the biblical material is headed toward an elevation of women in status and rights, so that's what William Webb, this biblical scholar, wrote. That, that, hey, these laws that God lays out and the protections for women that are built into them, they're heading in one direction, and that is elevation of status. Now, you take that to the New Testament, and you look at what the Apostle Paul has to share about women. And you, you, you see how the gospel of Jesus Christ elevates all women everywhere to a place where they're, they're, I mean, honestly, I don't believe that you could elevate them any higher. And so this, this concept and this idea that the Bible, you know, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, that they had something against women or that they looked down on women, it, it's absolutely not true. It's, it's, it's fodder that people, the world is trying to feed us. I would like to also point out to you the fact that in the Old Testament, we see many women who successfully fulfilled leadership roles and were esteemed by many consider with me Deborah who judged Israel in Judges chapter 4 Jael who was a hero in Israel she had a song that was sung about her because of her famous deeds in the land Miriam who uh, served alongside of uh, Aaron in in leading Israel uh, Holda the prophetess we also learn of a woman of wise reputation, the woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel. Abigail, the wife of wicked Nabal, who then later married King David in Samuel, 1 Samuel 25. What about Queen Esther? The Bible devotes an entire book of history of Israel to her story. And then we also have the woman of Proverbs 31, who was a wife, a mother, and a businesswoman who apparently excelled in all of those things because of her fear of the Lord, because she was a, a, a wise woman that feared the Lord, and she was able to, to do those things. Um, you know, in addition to those women, I would point out the numerous women in Old Testament Scripture that had a special uh, personal relationship with the Lord, where the Lord showed up in their time of need and spoke to them. What about Hagar with her son Ishmael when she's dying in the desert, and the Lord just comes and begins to pour into her and speak to her? Rebecca is another uh, example of a woman in the Old Testament that had an intimate relationship with the Lord. Many, many, uh, think of Hannah, Samuel's mom. So many of them listed there in the scriptures. I would also like to point out this, that some people like to say that the Old Testament is filled with male-dominant imagery. 
whenever it refers to God. But I would point out that there are also many examples of God in the scriptures that use feminine language or traditional feminine roles to describe God. Now, before I say this, I would, I would remind all of us that God is spirit. He's neither male nor female. He is spirit. And the imagery that the Bible uses, it uses that imagery to help us to understand him, to help define him. But God is a spirit. He's not a man or a woman. But, but listen to this. In Genesis chapter 3, God sews some, some, some comfortable clothes for Adam and Eve. Remember, they tried to cover themselves with the leaves. And they were chafing there in the garden. And God's like, let me take care of that problem. It's an act of mercy. He, he as a seamstress, sews some comfortable clothes for them. So they can just kind of hang out and chill out a little bit. He's also pictured as a loving mother in the prophet Hosea, chapter 11. He has motherly compassion, the word tells us in Jeremiah 31, verse 20. He, he, he sees Israel as a baby that he wants to take into his arms. Uh, we also see him as a comforting mother in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 12 to 13, where God says that he's going to uh, take Israel into his arms like a mother takes a baby and play with that baby on his knees. And there's this really strong imagery there of God as a mother. They're comforting his people. Nobody comforts like a mom, do they? I mean, you know, when my kids get hurt, they don't come running to me, you know, for help. They go running to mama because mom has that compassion that's been built into her. And I'm not saying that men don't have that, but I I just don't have it. (laughs) Wisdom is personified as a woman in the Proverbs, especially Proverbs chapter 8. And if you read Proverbs chapter 8, you will see a almost perfect comparison of Jesus Christ. You will see Jesus Christ in, in, in that comparison of, or that personification of wisdom there in Proverbs. And many of those descriptions of wisdom are actually applied to Christ. Now, I say all of this because I want everyone to know that what might seem to be denigrating or looking down on women here in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Law of Moses, this needs to be taken in its context. We need to remember the context. And in no way should we come to the conclusion that God thinks that women are inferior to men. Okay, as I said before, that concept leads to abuse. And that's where a lot of the problems that we have uh, in marriages that, that, that are coming from, it's come from this concept that, you know, I'm the, I'm the head and that makes me the king, you know. <laughs> I'm the head of this family and that makes me the dictator. You know, you got to do what I say. It's not that, it's a team. It's a teamwork. There's equality there. Now, yes... God did create an order for functionability, as I said before. But the idea that, that a woman is inferior to a man, that is not scriptural. So I wanted to refute that before we even get into this tonight. With that being said, we're now free to begin our time here in chapter 12. And there's only eight verses. But I wanted to um, show you the structure of that, the structure of the chapter. We have an introduction in verse 1. Then we have uncleanness following birth in, cha- in verses 2 through 5. Uh, Then we'll look at the sacrifice required after a birth in verses 6 and 7. A summary is also provided for us in chapter 7. And then there's one more additional provision for folks that can't afford the sacrifice found in verse 8. That's the structure of the chapel chapter. And it's a very simple law. There's not too much to it. But as I mentioned before, there are some difficult things to understand. We're going to look at all those tonight. And I'm going to offer you some suggestions to help you understand. Uh, hopefully better understand 
the why behind it. Let's get started. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. So it's important, first of all, let's pause there. It's important to understand two things about this passage that we're studying tonight. First of all, we need to understand that this passage is connected to Genesis chapter 3. It's connected to the idea or the concept of original sin. The language here in Leviticus 12 reminds us of the curse that was given by the Lord God to all the members of the female sex through Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, in fact, if you could turn back there to Genesis chapter 3 and read with me in verse 16. Keep your finger in Leviticus. There went my filing cabinet. Just dropped it all. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) All right. Genesis 3.16, we read this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We can flip back to uh, Leviticus chapter 12. So in that verse there in Genesis, you know, we find part of the, the curse that came to all mankind was the particular pain of childbirth. This apparently was not part of God's perfect plan for childbirth before sin and death entered into our lives. Can you imagine that, ladies? You bring your kids into the world to be like a celebration, like, woohoo, we're having a kid, you know, and uh, no pain at all involved. Well, that would be wonderful. It would have made that whole process of, of fulfilling God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply. It would have been fun, not just for the man, but for the woman too, right? <laughs> I mean, it would have been totally different there. But because of sin, because of uh, man's uh, infirmities the, 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 and, and the fall there in the garden, we find that part of the, the curse is this pain in the the process of bearing children. Naturally, naturally it would make sense then that this particular time of a woman's life and the healing process thereafter would be addressed in the laws that concern worship. It it, it was in and of itself a very spiritual moment. And and, and I don't know about this for you guys, but for me, I know that when my wife uh, had our children, I got to be present with her in that room, and I tell you what, it was a very spiritual time uh, for me. I was I was worshiping the Lord. I was I, mean, I was crying out to the Lord on one part of it, and then worshiping the Lord on the other after the baby was out and we were holding it and everything was good, you know. But that time before, you're you're, you're you don't know what's going to happen, and you're watching there, and it's a very it's a perilous time, and there are, there are obviously there are complications a lot of times, and uh, it can be very scary. We almost lost our first child even she's back there tonight just to such a joy such such a little princess but uh there was a, a moment there when i i thought we had lost her her heart stopped beating and the nurses rushed into the room and they were flipping you know rebecca around on that bed and trying to get a pulse and figure out what had happened and um you know i was told later that she had dropped too fast and something had happened and anyways it was a very scary moment where 
uh, I just fell down on my knees in the hospital room, was just crying out to God, you know. And uh, it's, it's a very spiritual moment there when you're brought face to face with this thing that uh, is caused, or this pain that comes directly from the curse. And so it's no wonder that God mentions that here as being something that is going to be addressed in the laws of worship. Secondly, we need to realize that this passage is speaking of ceremonially, ceremonial uncleanness, not moral uncleanness. Okay? This passage is in no way implying that a woman involved in childbirth is guilty of committing a sin. Okay? Childbirth, in fact, the, the child itself, it's not considered unclean. It's a, it's, as soon as it's born into the world, it's clean. There's nothing wrong. It, rather, it is the bodily secretions here that result from childbirth which are seen as making her ceremonially unclean. Now, immoral transgression was uh, something that resulted in spiritual defilement. And that would leave you unclean. You would have to offer a sacrifice to be cleansed. But... Uh, in, in, in a different kind of uncleanness. This, this is ceremonial uncleanness. So uh, this was different than moral uncleanness. This is not in any way to, to say that a woman who has a child is guilty of some sort of sin. Yet, at the same time, being ceremonially unclean, you, were not, you didn't have the privilege of entering into the sanctuary. You couldn't go worship God in Israel inside of that tabernacle area while you were in this period of time. And, and why is that? Now, I've talked a little bit about this in the past. I want to touch on it again tonight. What is it about this that uh, cre- causes the uncleanness? Well, just like a dead body that slowly decays and causes pollution, it contaminates, so also a bodily discharge is a reminder of sin and death. Okay, that's where this concept comes from. One commentator shared this insightful paragraph about this this whole process. He writes, loss of blood can lead to death, the antithesis of normal healthy life. Anyone losing blood is at least in danger of becoming less than perfect and therefore unclean. Thus blood is at once the most effective ritual cleanser. The blood makes atonement, that's Leviticus 17.11, and the most polluting substance when it is in the wrong place. This is profound. Our greatest woes result from the corruption of our highest good. For example, speech, uh, sex, technology, atomic power. So, so our greatest good, our greatest, some of our greatest good that we are capable of are also places or areas where when we uh, are not using that to glorify God, it is our greatest weakness, our, 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 our worst pollution comes from a mouth that on Sundays and Wednesdays comes and praises the Lord and yet leaves this place and goes home and mistreats a wife in the household or yells in anger and disciplines in anger a child, right? I mean, it's just, it's like you're going, what am I, Jekyll and Hyde? You know, what's wrong here? But that is the, that, the, the, the and then same thing with sex, you know, sex within marriage. God has sanctioned it it is a beautiful gift to the marriage relationship but when we exercise that that the 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 sex outside of the boundaries of a marriage it becomes one of the greatest polluters in in our lives it destroys our own self and and it could be it can be a, a destructive thing same thing with technology and atomic power i don't need to get into those but 
the point there being that when blood is being issued from a, a body, it's not a good thing. It's, it, it's labeled as unclean from the Lord because that person is in danger of becoming less than perfect. We continue on now to the ritual cleansing and the circumcision law. It says that on the, thir- on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. So circumcision, let's talk about that for a second. Circumcision on the eighth day, this is a physical rite. It had spiritual meaning. It was instituted by God for Abraham back in Genesis. And uh, he's reinstituting it here and now. He he, um, is about to require that the entire nation of Israel, all the males, be circumcised before they cross over the Jordan River and inherit the promised land. It is a physical right, but it has spiritual meaning. When they did this, these Israelite parents, they were basically declaring by faith that their son was a partaker of the promises of Abraham, that he was going to partake in the promises of Abraham. Now, although the rite of circumcision is not in practice today, uh, at least, I mean, I haven't had any kids lately, but uh, I know I, I circumcise all of my children um, also by faith, but I know that not everybody does that, and that's okay, because like I said, this is an Old Testament physical rite that doesn't have uh, meaning to the New Testament believer. It is the faith that, uh, it is the relationship to Christ by faith and a heart that's regenerated that God is looking for. Not that physical rite of circumcision anymore. In other words, for a Gentile believer, it's, it, it is not an outward physical sign that makes you a partaker of God's good promises. Okay, But it's rather it's your spiritual condition of the heart. Now, after giving birth to a son, the Israelite woman was contagiously unclean for seven days. That means anything that she touched or came into contact with, it also would become unclean. Just as when she was on her menstruation cycle, when she was in the days of of her menstruation cycle, of of her menstruation, she was uh, contagiously unclean. But after that first week was up, she then became only unclean in herself for 33 more days. She was no longer contagious. So the period of her uncleanness was 40 total days during which she could not go to the sanctuary to worship. Nor could she handle anything that was consecrated to God. Now, in part, this is probably uh, definitely given by God with recovery in mind. As many of you that have had children um, with an, uh, you know, I'm thinking probably especially with natural birth and things, you need that period of time to recuperate. You need that period of time to just uh, relax and bond with your baby and, you know, (laughs) Go through that postpartum depression period and just kind of be surrounded by people that care for you and can help and, and love you and, and help serve you. So anyways, um, that, that was 40 days. In verse 5, we see the different regulations for a girl. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean. So it wasn't just seven days, it was, it was two weeks. As during her period, then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. Therefore, 80 days of uncleanness in the case of a baby girl being born. Now, it's not hard to understand the law. We can can easily understand the law. But what is hard to understand here is the thinking 
behind this law. I was talking this over with my wife and beforehand, and she was like, yeah, I've always had a question about that when I read that passage. Why does God uh, you know, require double the amount of time for a girl and, and only half the amount of time for the, for, for the boy? And then also, you know, this, this all ties into earlier, when you redeem a boy, there was a certain price that was set to redeem him, and then when you redeemed a female, it was half of that price. And so, you know, we're looking at that, we're going, we don't understand this. Why is this? What's going on with this? Now remember, you must keep things in context. Don't fly to conclusions or, or, you know, be dramatic about this. We need to keep it in its context. There are several possible explanations for this. And I'm going to list several of them for you tonight. Um, There is not, not one of these that can be said to be, this is it without a doubt, okay? But there are many men who have studied the scriptures and this is, this is what they've come up with, okay? So I'm going to share them with you. Number one, uh, there's evidence that suggests that civ- ancient civilizations believed that the postnatal discharge lasted longer in the case of a girl. So there was, there was this, this, this idea, this thought that was out there that if you had a girl, then your postnatal discharge was going to be, you know, it was going to be extended longer than that of, of a boy. Now... This has also been scientifically shown to be the case generally, although it is hard to use that data as evidence to justify adding a whole extra 40 days to the, to the, um, just for the birth of a girl. So that one is, that one is you know, it's, it's a little bit shaky. Another explanation, another possible explanation, is that this is a further reflection on the relative status of the sexes in ancient Israel which seemed to emphasize the male role over the female role, especially in the Mosaic Covenant. It's just something that it's, it's in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this was also reflective of all the other ancient civilizations of that day. Remember what I said, that in most of those civilizations, women were treated as property, and uh, they had no rights. In fact, there's evidence that if you were a woman in that culture and you were raped, it wasn't the rapist who was punished, it was the woman. And so uh, the very fact that God has laws that relate uh, uh, raping a woman to uh, the death penalty or giving them the death penalty shows that God considers that a crime and that he's elevating the status of women there. And, And we'll get into that when we come across those laws, but... That's, that's one of the explanations here is that, you know, it's just a reflection of the relative status of the sexes at that time in ancient Israel. Uh, another explanation for this difference is that in the case of a female child, the mother had given birth to a sinner who would normally go and bring forth from herself another sinner. So in the case of a male, because he would not go and give birth uh, it was only 40 days, but because it was a female child and she would grow up and one day become pregnant in a normal life and have another child, there was an extra 40 days tacked on. Sounds interesting to me, but I'm throwing it out there to you. Another explanation, the last one I'll share with you guys tonight, is from a, a man named Warren Wearsby, great commentator and pastor. Um, he wrote this. He says, perhaps God established these regulations primarily for the health of the mother and her bonding to her daughter. The social structure of Israel was decidedly masculine and sons were more welcome than daughters. So Warren Wearsby sees this as a, a, an act of mercy that God actually builds into the law 
of Leviticus to give those mothers extra time to bond with their daughters, knowing that um, there would be more emphasis on the male births um, in, in, within the Mosaic Covenant. In either case, of a boy or a girl, though, once their purification time was over, they were required to come and to make a sacrifice, which we see in verse 6. When the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are over, she's to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her. Then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. Let's pause right there for a moment. Now it's interesting that there had to be two offerings given. One of those offerings was a sin offering and it was given as purification. But remember, the sin offering, the blood was taken from that animal and it was smeared on the altar. Okay, it was, it was, it was smeared on the four horns of the altar and it was splashed there against the sides. And it was to purify the altar from the presence of sin. So what this is telling us is that by having this, this woman in the camp... And in and, and her unclean condition, ceremonially unclean, not, not from anything she'd done morally, but just being ceremonially unclean, her sin pervaded the altar there in the tabernacle. And it, would, it required cleansing. This is very interesting to me that um, th- th- that was the case, that it was necessary. Um, the burnt offering was, was the sign of dedication to the Lord. Now, the chapter closes with a short summary and a provision for the poor. It says, these are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So even the poorest people in Israel, they could afford these two turtle doves or these two pigeons. And this is exactly what we read about Mary. Mary and Joseph, after her time of purification was over in the book of Luke chapter 2, she goes up and she offers this Levitical sacrifice of two turtle doves for the birth of Jesus Christ. So it shows us that that the family of Jesus was, was probably a poor family. They were not able to afford the sacrifices of, of, a, of a lamb. So she, she brought the, the, the other one. Now, as we wrap that chapter up, what can we take away from it? Well, number one, uh, let's, let's remember original sin. Let's remember that birth is a time that we are all reminded that, hey, you know, we live in a fallen condition. This was not the way God designed it to be originally. And uh, we live in a fallen world. And fallen creatures, you know, fallen beings, we, they give birth to sinners. And this reminds us that, hey, you know, we, we need Jesus Christ to come and to break the chain of, you know, the, the, the sin that is passed on through our fathers. Jesus Christ is the one who does that. Secondly, we can take away from this that we're reminded about God's plan to defeat sin and death through Jesus, who fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. Jesus fulfilled every single part of the law for us on our behalf, so that when we stand before God, we're not, we're, he's going to look at us and see us in Christ and go, you're perfect. You're perfect. Enter into your rest. Because Jesus has stepped in and taken our place. And thirdly, we can take away from this passage tonight, that we're blessed not to have to worry about ceremonially uncleanness. 
because we've been cleansed once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that his blood sprinkles us. It, it cleanses our conscience from the, the, the continuing presence of sin in our lives. And so Jesus' blood, man, it was shed once for all and past, present, future sin. And, and that's the blessing that we have tonight. We don't need to get wrapped up in following ceremonial laws from the Old Testament. Okay, we don't need to worry about the dietary regulations of the book of Leviticus. You can have the shellfish, the pork pulled sandwich, and all of the halibut that you want, okay? So enjoy it. Enjoy the fact that Jesus Christ wins us our freedom tonight and that we don't need to worry about, you know, whether or not you can come to church one week after you had a baby or not, okay? You're welcome to come in. You're welcome to worship the Lord with us. That's, that's, that's the Old Testament. That's Levitical law, okay? Now, it might be better for you to rest up at home and listen online, okay? <laughs> it might be better for that baby to not be exposed to all those colds floating around. But, uh, but you're certainly welcome to come. No one's going to tell you, hey, you're ceremonially unclean. Get out of here, you know. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study it on a weekly basis. Lord, sometimes we have long chapters. Sometimes we have short chapters like tonight. And we get done a little bit earlier. But Lord, we pray that you'd bless the time that we have now. Lord, just to spend praying and lifting up some things, Lord, that we need to do as well as a church. Because you said that your church, Lord, is to be a house of prayer. So Lord, we pray that we could uh, just do that now. And lift up these things that, that are on our hearts, Lord, to you in this time. Lord, bless the congregation tonight. I pray that anyone listening, Lord, knows that through Jesus Christ, we are um, free. We are given freedom from all of these laws of the Old Testament, Lord. But, but we do need to obediently profess faith in, in Jesus Christ and, and believe on him and confess our sins and repent. Lord, there's salvation in no other than you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that that we would find that, that peace with God through you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.